everybody. Welcome to the Alliance podcast. This is Risa Courier and coming to you from the Humane Rescue Alliance in Washington, D.C. Today, I am joined by my colleague, Adrienne Carson. She is the Director of Training and Behavior at our St. Hubert's Animal Welfare Center in New Jersey. Before Adrienne came on the show, we posted on our social media platforms that she would be joining us and asked folks to submit their questions for Adrienne on training and behavior and needs they have with their pups. And we were overwhelmed by the response. We got so many questions, many from new pet parents. So we are going to try to tackle as many questions as we can during this podcast. But I can assure you, we will continue to have other opportunities for you to engage with Adrienne and ask your the questions that are burning for you about your canine family member. So, Adrian, welcome to the Alliance podcast. Thank you so much, Risa. Thank you for having me. When we were chatting before the podcast, I asked you a little bit about your background in animal welfare, and you said, oh, you know, it's it's really not very interesting, the story about how I ended up in animal welfare, and then it ended up being like a really fascinating story. So... Um, Before we get into all of our great questions, can you just talk a little bit about how you came to be the director of training and behavior and uh, the path that led you to this position? Well, I was a child who was obsessed with dogs and um, I collected dog stuffed animals and had a a little dog house built for me so that my little my little dogs could have a place and um and I wanted a dog very badly but I couldn't have one because we had allergies in the family so I used to go to the library at school every week we got to go to the library and pick a book and I kept picking the same book the encyclopedia of the dog and um I did that until my librarian insisted that I start reading other topics (laughs) so um so I did, I continued reading about dogs until I, until I got, you know, much, much older. And then when I went to college, I went to school for biology. And I thought to myself, well, my gosh, I love dogs so much. And by that time I had dogs, I thought, wow, one day when I retire, I'm going to, you know, really get into this dog thing. And about a couple of years into working in a microbiology lab, I just said, what am I doing? I I really need to pursue this. And so I did. I pursued first being um, becoming a certified professional dog trainer. And then with more education, I was able to get certified as a, a behavior consultant with the International Association of animal behavior consultants. So, uh, so that's how I, that's how I started my career. I, I've been working with uh, shelter dogs for as long as I've been studying dog training, and and I started that in 1995. Wow, well, that's that's an interesting trajectory that that brought you to animal welfare. So now you have to tell me, in all the times that you looked at the book about dogs, what ended up being your favorite dog breed? Oh my gosh, I <laughs> I have a soft spot for pointy faces, <laughs> so um, I I am definitely partial to herding breeds, corgis. Um, the, specifically the cardigan Welsh corgi and the, um, and collies, rough collies. Those are my favorites. But um, but I've had several mixed breeds that um, that were herding breed varieties. Oh, those those are favorite of mine as well. And I love watching the Netflix series The Crown. 
because of the adorable corgis <laughs> that you're going to see <laughs> running around causing shenanigans in uh, the royal residences. So, Adrian, how long have you been at St. Hubert's? I started here at St. Hubert's as a dog trainer at the training school in 2002. But I started it before that as a volunteer because part of getting your education in dog training is really about getting hands-on experience with a mentor. So St. Hubert's provided me a really good opportunity. I had already been training since 1995, but I met the current director who was here at the time and she offered me a position. So I, you know, came in and I volunteered for a bit uh, in the classrooms just to get to get to know what was going on and to get to see how everyone taught here and what the standards were. And then by 2002, I was on my own teaching here. Okay, so you've been around for a while. So uh, you were the perfect person then to answer all of these questions that we have we submitted. And um, I tried to break them down into a few categories um, that really stood out. And it's very clear from these questions, we have a lot of new pet parents in our community right now. I think uh, the pandemic really created an opportunity for many families to add a pet to their family. And it's also been kind of a challenge for people to be able to access those socialization opportunities and, and training and behavior opportunities that are normally available. So um, this was, uh, we, we, we definitely got a lot of questions. So one of the categories that people asked about was resource guarding. So one of our uh, followers on Facebook page submitted a question about her puppy who resource guards. And he doesn't resource guard from people. He resource guards from other pets in the household. So what advice would you give Paige? Well, resource guarding is a funny behavior problem because it really it, it isn't a problem as far as dogs are concerned. We don't like it because obviously we don't, you know, when, when our other, when our pets get into a fight, it can be very stressful. I mean, injuries can happen, but it, it does make sense to dogs to protect the things that they find important, especially bones and food items, maybe even toys and resting space. So it's really important if dogs are, if you have dogs that are guarding from other pets in the household, it's very important to make sure that when they are with their heavily guarded items, like say for instance, a dog is guarding bully sticks. If they're with their bully sticks, they need to be in a place where it's going to be low stress. So I would put that dog behind a baby gate so he can go into the living room on the sofa by himself and enjoy his bully stick. Um, it's really about the the pressure the, or the fear that someone's going to take their stuff away that causes them to tense up and, and be more guardy. So the antidote to that really is to teach them, hey, listen, you're not going to be, nobody's going to hover around you and circle you when you have your things. Um, it's going to be okay. And to just take that pressure off and to manage the dogs appropriately. If you are interested in getting your dog um, to be able to be in the house with the other dogs and the bones without a gate separating them or not, you know, or, or with being in the same room, I would then strongly suggest that you hook up with a professional so that they can observe the dog's behavior because resource guarding can come, you know, a lot of the behavior problems do come in mild, moderate, and severe. So if it's mild, it might be able to be something that can be integrated normally, 
or um, if it's severe and you should have a professional be able to help you with that, um, then you might want to say, you know what, it's just best practice to keep food and, you know, all the animals separate and chewing time and, and so on and so forth. If it's something that's just unlivable, um, like the dog is just not letting another dog walk through the house, then I would suggest calling a professional right away. Okay. Thanks for that answer. So we also got a question from Regina. She has a hound puppy who was doing well out of the crate when he was left alone and then, quote, he, out of the blue, he ate the house, unquote. So Regina shared some pictures of some significant uh, drywall damage. So the puppy actually did eat her house. Um, what advice can you give to Regina? Okay, well... Unfortunately, puppies are just chewing machines. I mean, um, they don't realize that they're not supposed to do that because when they are small, if they're if they're young enough and they're still teething, they need to chew on things, and they're looking for a variety of of surfaces or of uh, textures to put into their mouths, kind of like a baby. At, at certain stages, they'll put things into their mouths. They're exploring their world. Um, but as the puppy gets older and starts to need more exercise and starts to approach adolescence, they chew for different reasons. They're not teething anymore, but they need to release pent-up energy. They need to uh, reduce tension by chewing. And so it's important for dogs to always have great things to chew on and that you rotate the the things that you give them. So if a dog gets a access to one a type of bully stick every day, or if he's got some really nice nylon bones laying around, but they've always been there and they aren't rotated, they can get, dogs can get bored of what they have. And then they'll start looking for different substances to sink their teeth into. So, um, Look for, watch your dog and rotate his toys and give him different things to chew. Sometimes consumables are good, like the bully stick is consumable. Um, sometimes you might want to change it up and stuff, uh, stuff food items into a red rubber Kong toy. So the dog has to work that out differently. And, and these activities of chewing are really like giving your dog a job. So, so just definitely rotate the tasks so that they don't get bored doing the exact same thing every day. And then they won't be as likely to go fishing and look around your house for things to explore. Now, that said, you also need a really good management plan to make sure that your dog isn't roaming around the house too, uh, too, too, with too much freedom too soon. So dog is young and is moving around the house and, you know, and isn't supervised um, long enough, then yeah, he's going to find things. He might find shoes, he might find the edges of furniture, and obviously they can also get really into drywall because it gets wet as they lick it. And it's pretty easy to, to pull away. So you do have to make sure you're supervising. So what I like to do with puppies who are still in the chewing phase, sometimes chewing and house training phase, is I keep them in the room that I'm in. And I'll put a long line, like maybe a 10 or 15 foot leash on them. And I'm watching them play. And if they decide to get up and they start walking like they're going to walk out of the room, I quickly step on the leash and say, excuse me, we don't leave rooms without each other. And I might take the dog outside and see, was that a signal to go potty? Or were you just going to go hunting for something else to do? And that's just not going to be permitted for a dog that is still in that 
in that young stage. Um, years ago, a woman, a, a dog woman told me they chew till they're two and told me they chew till they're two. I didn't realize it was that long that they chew. Well, yeah, because um, actual adulthood in dogs really doesn't kick in until they're between two and three. So even though they become adults at a year of age, according to some of the dog food bags, they're, they're actually not mature adults until they're about two to three years of age. And so if you can prevent your dog from learning how to chew things that aren't his by rotating and by managing properly, then you won't have a two, three, four, five-year-old dog that wants to eat the house. But it's extremely common. All puppies come pre-programmed to chew everything in sight. And it's really up to us to make sure that they don't develop bad habits by supervising them and by constantly putting the right things in their mouths. Well, and that opens up a whole other issue. I think if you go to a supply store, it's almost overwhelming with the number of options available for chewers. And especially if you have a puppy that can chew chew through things really quickly. Um, I know you mentioned a Kong and some other things. Uh, what what are your thoughts on rawhide and, and what products should people be looking for and what should they be avoiding? Well, we don't use raw hides here at our facility because we've been told by a few different veterinarians that they've had to remove raw hides from their um, intestines or from their stomachs because they, they got blocked. They can get they can get kind of um, wedged in there somehow. I'm not a doctor, so I couldn't explain it. But um, But enough veterinarians have complained to us about them that what we do here, what we have here, um, we actually have a little boutique shop here called Buddy's Boutique, where we sell items that we have vetted. We have tried them with our own pets and with shelter pets, and we believe in our products. So we we sell a product called No Hide, and so it is a it's a modified, more digestible version of a rawhide. And so the dogs are going to get the same experience as a rawhide, but it's just a lot safer in the system. Okay, and what are suggestions of things to put in Kongs. Like I know at, at the shelters we'll often freeze um, like peanut butter uh, and put that in the Kong. Do you have any other suggestions of things people could put in the Kong since they're reusable? Absolutely. I mean, anything that you can get in there is a good experiment because sometimes I've wedged stuff in there and I wedged it too hard and the dog just gave up. So what, it's important to find different things that the dog can get out at their own pace. Now there are expert Kong unstuffers that you can just pack them tight, freeze them solid, but it usually takes some practice so that the dogs build their skills to be consistently going in and trying to get the items out as opposed to just walking away because it's too frustrating. So we start off with things like you mentioned, like peanut butter and maybe some kibble. Um, and we might not even put it in frozen. And then eventually as they get better and better at it, we'll, we'll put other things in there. So I've experimented with different things and, um, and, and pet owners should experiment as well and see what their dog can get and what seems too difficult. So, I mean, I've put white rice in, I might, you put a piece of a sweet potato in there. Um, I might hit the, you know, the sweet potato with a little bit of shake, shaky cheese, like Parmesan cheese, just to make it a little more smelly. 
I might put a little teaspoon of liverwurst at the very bottom of the Kong. So it's like the goal. And then on the way into the Kong, there might be other things in there like, uh, you know, cr- uh, cracked dog biscuits and, and maybe some, some pureed pumpkin, pumpkin in a can. So I mean, uh, yogurt, you know, yogurt mixed with a little bit of pumpkin makes a nice, you know, like a fall smoothie <laughs> for the dogs, you know, and you can get, fun, you can get creative like that and do it for the seasons. And, um, you know, this being the winter, there's a lot of pumpkin around, but, uh, you know, in the summer we might do like applesauce and, and some other interesting things. So you can, yeah, you can really, whatever's safe for your dog and whatever doesn't affect his digestion, um, is, is what you can experiment with. That's what's so fun about a Kong. Well, and it, it's so affordable. I mean, you have the initial investment of the Kong, which you know, is around $10, so depending on the size. But then those are, you can fill it with things that you have around your house, which is really nice. Like most people have peanut butter and applesauce because, um, you know, those bully sticks and they just get so expensive uh, um, after a while. I speak from experience watching, you know, going to this pet supply store and having, um, you know, a, a store clerk saying oh these these last forever and then watching my dog grind through it in about two minutes and it's like oh man I just spent $15 on that so (laughs) yes yes they do you're right they're they are costly so I mean it's good to have a menu like what is my dog going to get this week and say okay so I can afford one bully stick this week right so I'll put that maybe on Friday and then um but I'm going to stuff a Kong every single day but then I might have a different menu item in the each day. So, um, so yeah, that definitely is a more economical choice. I have big giant jar full of Kongs because it works better with my life to stuff a bunch of Kongs, put them in the freezer and then just pull them out when I need them. So I have a giant Ziploc bag full of pre-stuffed Kongs. And, um, so for me, it was worth it to make the investment of several Kongs as opposed to just the one, because it, it, it enables me to not have to wash it. Like, you know, like I'm washing a dish after every time I'm using it. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good suggestion. So also with the women, uh, re- going back to Regina's question with her, her puppy who eats the house, you know, she also said that, you know, he was doing well out of the crate. I wonder if, you know, having some more time uh, with crate training might work for him. I mean, one thing that I discovered being a, a new pet parent is I felt so bad putting my dog in the crate. And it really wasn't until I started working for an animal sheltering organization that I recognized like putting, having some crate time is not only good for me and, you know, obviously the safety of the dog, but it's really good for the dog's emotional and mental well-being to have just a little bit of alone time, a little bit of separate time and and, in kind of a safe space that she can retreat to when things get overwhelming. Um, Have you found other people are really reluctant to, to have great time with their dog? Yes, I definitely have. And I think right now with everyone home, because of COVID, we're going to see more dogs that if they do have to be crated, they're going to panic. So we noticed it in our drop-off day training program, where some of these young dogs who've been raised at home with people home all the time, when they have to go into the crate to wait their turn between between dogs while the trainers are rotating dogs, some of them are, are crying and they're barking. And while that is really what happens sometimes when a puppy is trying to learn, you know, at home, learn how to be crate trained, 
you know, we really, you know, we do that. That is a normal part of it. And so if the family would maybe get some of that work done at home, it wouldn't be so traumatic when the puppy has to maybe stay at a vet or go to boarding or if you're having work done in the house, like those should not be the first times that your dog has to stay in a crate kind of against his will. So the idea is to make the crate a fun place. The crate, you know, there's always a treat tossed in. My dogs, if I say the word crate or if I grab a treat, they all race to their crates because they just want to get their get their treat. And obviously it's not a very uh, traumatic place for them because they wouldn't race there as fast as they could if it was. So crates are just nice for mopping the floor. Um, if you ever have someone over who's afraid of dogs. And again, like uh, sometimes if you have company and you think, oh, wow, you know, my dog could really use a break. Um, a crate is a great place to put them, especially if you have a lot of kids visiting and you don't normally live with kids. The dog should not have to have this big introduction introduction to children, a 10 hour, you know, a 10 hour family picnic, like the whole 10 hours. Like he, he really should meet children when he's feeling great and when he's having some good interactive time with them. And then go to the crate so that the dog can have some private time and, and doesn't have to ask for private time. So, I mean, the, the benefits to crating your dog are numerous. I mean, from car travel safely to, um, you know, not wanting your dog to be tra traumatized if he has to stay in a crate because he breaks his leg or something like that. You don't want your dog to be under that kind of stress while he's trying to heal. So it's, it's a really important um, preventive measure that owners can take. And, you know, when we really wish that they would work on crate training, um, because even if it doesn't really feel like you need it going forward, it's better to have that skill than to wish you had done it. Well, and I think that that's so important. That's an important point that, you know, crate training isn't just for young puppies. It's for it's a good skill for dogs to have a good place for them to be able to go to to through the duration of their life with our senior dog, especially, we started creating him towards the end. I mean, just because, you know, he was dealing with some dementia issues and vision challenges, and it just was the safest place for him. But the crate had always been a really safe, happy place where he got delicious treats. And so um, that was something we relied upon, you know, till the end of his life. So, um, so, yeah, I think, you know, going back to Regina's question, we, you know, we don't want to, like, push the puppy out of the crate. That's not the goal to get him out of the crate so soon that having him in the crate is okay. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. And I love your example because it's something that we just don't think about. The later in life dog could benefit from the crate. And, and that's a, you know, that's a really wonderful example. I mean, we just don't know when we might need it. And so better to have that trained in. So I'll move ahead to some other questions. We actually had several people ask about leash reactivity. So um, most of the questions were about, you know, people are walking their dogs and then, you know, they, they cross the street and there's another dog on the leash and the dog starts pulling, barking aggressively, lunging. What are some things people can do to start remedying that behavior? Well, we see two different kinds of leash reactivity here at, at the center. We see dogs who are reacting that way. And, and it's, it's funny because when you look at them, you're, it's hard to really tell the difference at, on face value. 
they are reacting that way because they're basically having a temper tantrum. They like other dogs. They play with other dogs. Some of these dogs even go to date camp or they go to the dog park. Um, but what they're doing is it's kind of like they're having a, a fit because they're being told, no, you can't go see that other dog over there in the distance right now. And that's, you know, that's about teaching your dog, mind your own business, please. We're not playing right now. And, um, and it doesn't necessarily mean that they're aggressive. Now, some of them, just because of the fact that they're having such a tantrum, aggression can be involved because, you know, as children, uh, you know, having temper tantrums, what do they do? They kick, they scream, they might even bite, you know, a toddler. And that's sort of how I see it. I see it like a toddler tantrum. And, um, you know, you're dragging your kid out of the candy store. You're not getting any, you know, sorry. And um, and it can, you know, it can definitely result in, in physical injury to the owner, to, you know, to other dogs. If they get loose, they might get over there and then react a bit more um, with a bit more enthusiasm than they normally would because they were just so wired from having that fit. Um, the other type of reactive dog that we see are dogs that are feeling, you know, perhaps, you know, most of them, I would say, have some sort of discomfort around other dogs. They're, for whatever reason, they are uncomfortable, okay, um, when they see them. And so some of them are behaving that way because they want to make a big display because they're, they're hoping that the other dog will go away. And oftentimes that's exactly what happens. If you have a reactive dog, you'll see people pick up their dogs and scurry away. You'll see people turn and go in the opposite direction. Or maybe every time your dog acts that way, you've said, oh, let's turn and go in the other direction. So, so I mean, it is reinforced. The dogs are taught that if they act that way, the other dog will leave. So, so we, we deal with both of those types of dogs here. We have a class called Feisty Fidos, and, um, and it's an eight-week course that addresses all of these behaviors. What we start with is we start by figuring out what the dog's motivation is. Okay, so let's just say I discover that my dog's motivation is food, right? And then we have the owners take a... Um, you know, grade their, you know, take, take food and, and, and make a list of things that the dog likes from, you know, like absolute best in the whole wide world down to, you know, still good, but, you know, not, not, you know, going to jump through hoops for. So I might have, you know, stuff like steak at the top of the list and then followed by like string cheese and then followed by, you know, maybe some dog food roll, maybe some, you know, delicious fresh pet is in there. And then we, a fresh pet is a is a refrigerated food roll that you can get in a lot of grocery stores, and um, and then down down the line there you might have something like some more like commercial dog treats like freeze dried liver or freeze dried chicken. Um, but if you notice, I, I, it's a lot of whole foods. It's a lot of um, you know like whole foods and, and and prepared foods. It's not dog treats that you get out of a bag because when you're dealing with a dog who's upset, you have to get you have to get control over their uh, over them by getting control over their appetite. So a lot of people then come to us and say, "Okay, um, I tried what you're doing. I got, you know I made my list. My dog loves these things, but when he goes outside, he's so upset that he won't even take those treats." Right. So then what we have to do is we have to then look at the dog's um, daily daily intake of food. Sometimes they're getting too much food in their food bowl, and then we we can help people to manipulate their dog's motivation by manipulating what they get and when they get it. So, so it, you know, we do, we do a fair amount of work to try to get the dogs to focus on us instead of on the outside world. And then it's all about the timing. It's about teaching the dogs 
that, you know, you're going to get your good things that you really want, but only if you mind your own business, don't look at that other animal, and I'm not going to make you go up and say hello. So whether it's the dog who needs to not say, learn to not say hi to every other animal, or it's the dog who really needs a promise from you that he's not going to get closer and closer and closer and possibly be asked to sniff another dog, right? You're, you're basically signing a contract with your dog that says, we're not going to do this. We're going we're gonna to keep our distance from other dogs. And, and that is the, usually the first step in getting the dogs under control. Once we get that step accomplished, then we can move on to teaching more elaborate behaviors. Well, and, and it's true. It's really true. Food is such a big motivator um, and can somehow, in the dog's brain, it goes from being a very uh, charged situation to a pleasant, delicious uh, opportunity. Um, but one thing I've, I've learned um, from, I, I really love Patricia McGonnell's books. I, I read her book on, I think it, it was Reactive Dogs. I can't remember, but it talks exactly about this. You know, my dog is trying to lick the computer right now. Um, on, on uh, you know, working with, with least reactive dogs and, you know, giving them, treating them just as they start, you know, noticing the other animal. And, and one thing that I've struggled with is, you know, sometimes I'll forget my treat bag or sometimes I'll be you know, helping one of my children and I don't get her just at the right moment. And I think I've had to be really forgiving with myself that you're not going to get it perfect every time. Like, it's just, you know, you have to just keep at it. it it's just, you know, it takes time, but that if you, if you mess up, it's okay. Like the dog is going to forgive you and you're not going to go back to square one, which I always feel like I will. It, it, you, you keep progressing forward. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, and that's um, that's a really important thing to point out that behavior behavior work is not a straight line. Better, 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 best. It is up and down, just like our own behavior change. I mean, think about it. If you've ever tried to diet, it's not just better, 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 best, and then no one ever gains weight back again. I mean, certainly some people's trajectory may look that way, but I think most people have ups and downs and you know, you're in the middle of following, you know, a, a good keto diet plan or something. And then all of a sudden, you know, you, you, you succumb to a brownie because you're at someone else's house and there's, so, you know, the social pressure to eat that brownie. Um, you just start again. And so that is really the reality of behavior work, whether it's with humans or other animals like dogs. So that brings me to my next question. Um, and this is a question I, th I think a lot of, this is an issue a lot of people are really grappling with right now. Um, in the time of COVID, when we have fewer visitors um, and fewer people knocking on the door, fewer, fewer people entering our homes. So Katie wrote and asked us, um, you know, her dogs are going totally banana cakes anytime somebody comes into their house. And this is a new phenomena. So how do you condition dogs to getting used to company when we're just not having a lot of company right now? Well, I would say that we have control over whether or not our dogs go crazy at the front door. Um, right right away. I, I tell people, even in, in orientations in classes, you can go home and never have your dog jump on another guest starting today. And it's very simple. You have to 
use a leash so that your dog is now physically prevented from jumping and you can have food rewards with you to reward them for staying calm. So as you have them on their leash, they may be struggling to jump, but there are gonna be moments where they have four feet on the floor and they're not, they're not jumping and you're holding your leash in such a way that makes it difficult for them to jump, right? But then if they do calm down and, and, and take that, capture a moment, a moment where the dog is just standing still and acting normally, um, one of the other things that you can do, because I think a lot of door issues come from the element of surprise. If you're not expecting a person or if the, the doorbell rings and, and everybody startles from the sound of that doorbell, now you're trying to wrangle everybody and everybody's heart rate, including your own, is up. And everybody is feeling like very frantic to get the person who's on the on the porch in the house. And it doesn't have to be that way. So a lot of our students will put a sign up that says, um, you know, please do not ring the bell. They'll cover the bell. And it'll say, please call me on my cell phone when you arrive so I can get my dogs prepared, dogs in training or something like that. So so it's funny, like we'll see, you know, people bring in the signs that shows pictures of the signs that they have on their front doors. Yeah. So you got to give yourself that chance and then make sure you have, this is why I love freeze dried liver treats because it's like having a piece of fresh cooked liver. I mean, the dogs love it and you can have it out and in a little tin or a jar up by your, by the entrance of your house, up on a shelf or on a piece of furniture that the dog can't access. And then when you take the dog and say, come on, we're going to go to the front door and we're going to sit and we're going to relax. You can even practice that when people aren't at your front door, you can practice that with family members that live in the house coming in and out just to get the dogs patterned to do that. Oh, the, you know, here's, here's somebody's at the door. We're going to go open it. We're going to relax. We're not going to touch that person. And you can even start with your family members by saying, look, when you come home, don't immediately, immediately bend down and start touching the dog because then that sets up a, a pattern in the dog's mind that says, oh, when people come through the door, it's about five seconds before I'm getting touched and petted and played with and, you know, sometimes made to feel really excited. So it's got to become a non-event that people come and they go and they come and they go. And then during the visit, yeah, that's when people will interact. So I'll keep my dogs calm by, I'll say, come on, if I'm training a puppy or a young dog or even an older dog that's recently adopted, come on, we're going to go to the door together on a leash. I've got treats in my hand. You're not going to jump. And in about 15 minutes after the people are in and you've calmed down, I'm going to let you go over and say hi, because that's the behavior I want the dog to practice, saying hi when they're calm, not saying hi when they're frantic. That's great. Well, we have time for uh, one last question. And this I will share my personal experience and uh, get your advice on. I don't I don't mean to hijack uh, this opportunity to talk to you for my my own self but but we actually got several questions about the velcro dog and so i will share my experience with a velcro dog um so we adopted margo in september and um so as i as i'm sitting here uh you know speaking on this podcast she is pressed with her body as close to mine as she can be uh she she follows me wherever I go, so she gets in a lot of steps every day, um, and I'm her primary caretaker. So I, you know, I feed her every day, and um, I take her for walks, and she sleeps in a little bed next to my desk most of the day. Um, and I've been really working with other members of my family um, 
to change that. So to create opportunities for my son and my husband and daughter to to also feed her and pet her and take her for walks. So she she builds that relationship with them as well. Um, we also have little timeouts in the crate during the day so she gets some time alone. Um, but if it was up to her, she would have her eyes on me every moment. And she looks very worried if, if I do go out of sight or if I have to go somewhere. She does cry and get upset. So what advice would you have for me and other owners of the Velcro dog? I definitely love that you're putting her in the crate and making her have some alone time because that does help to give independence. And I think that everybody should be doing that. I think that it is also really important to teach your dogs how to go to their place on command. That's something that we teach in our basic training program. It's where you point to a dog bed and you say, go to your place, dog runs over there, and then it becomes a stay. And they need to stay on that mat until you tell them to get up again. So dogs that follow you from room to room or even, uh, you know, I know dogs will follow you around one room. They'll follow you from the stove to the fridge, back to the stove, to the sink as you're cooking. And um, it's good for those dogs to learn. Now, go to your station and have a little separation. And then I will release you with the word, okay, when it's time to get up again. And just to make that a daily part of your practice. Like, I'm going to go sit on the sofa, and but I want you to go over here on that mat for 15 minutes. You don't need to be up on me on my lap right now. And we, those those of us who are the object of of the attachment can sometimes do well to to ignore our dogs a little bit and kind of like not always feed into every request for petting and and uh and and closeness it's just it's just for their own well-being and i don't mean long extended periods of time where we're ignoring the dog i just mean to watch our own behavior and make sure that we're not always reinforcing it. So like if you know people complain that oh my gosh my dog goes in the bathroom with me. Well, right, but have you know when you sit down to go to the bathroom, are you petting the dog when he comes over to you? Because I mean that right there, that's reinforcement. Petting is another form of reinforcement. And for a dog who is saying, I am so social, then re- you know, physical touch could be very high on their list of rewards. So we have to watch our own behavior and we need to train a little bit of independence, and I would definitely start with the stay on your mat. It's called go to your place. That's a that's an extra an extra thing that you can do. But otherwise, it sounds like you are making some really good steps, taking some really good steps to, to work with your dog, including the crate. Well, thank you, Adrian. That's a really good a good tip in working with her on going to her space and and um, having a little bit, you know, encouraging some more independence. That is helpful. Um, so, Adrian, thank you so much for your time. This is I certainly have learned a lot in the last half hour, and I hope you are willing to come and. Uh, to talk to us on the podcast again, because I know a lot of people are um, are really trying to integrate these these new pets into their family. And, and it's, you know, it's a challenge right now uh, with the pandemic going on and, and less access to socialization and then classes and all the things that that we rely on during normal times. Yeah, so um yeah, I will definitely. I'm here whenever you need me. And I know we did get a lot of questions. So if we didn't get to answer everybody's question, um, stay tuned and maybe we'll go over a different batch of questions next time. 
Well, and for folks that don't know, at the at, um, C. Hebert's Animal Welfare Center in New Jersey at the Madison campus, they have a world-class training center, um, all sorts of different classes uh, that are offered. So you just can go to St. Hubert's website. And also for folks that are living in the D.C. metro area, uh, the Humane Rescue Alliance also has a really robust training and behavior program. So you can just visit our website and learn all about the great classes from puppy socialization to uh, leash reactivity, um, agility classes, you name it, we've got it. And and animal welfare organizations, um, including your local shelter, are generally a wonderful resource uh, for behavior and training needs. These folks are certified. They know what they do, they're doing. They have seen and done it all. Um, so no matter whatever challenge your pup is facing, they know how to handle it. Thanks, Adrian. Have a wonderful rest of your day.